Well, first of all, thank you very much for the very warm uh, welcome that has been given to me. It's nice to be with you this morning and to share in your morning time of worship and to draw your attention to uh, the Word of God. And thank you too, as well, just on behalf of the College, for your support and interest in the work that uh, continues to be done there. If you have your Bible uh, handy, can I encourage you to turn to it and uh, keep it open at Second Peter um, chapter 1. Some of you may remember that back in 2009, the British Humanist Association launched what they called the Atheist Bus Campaign. The Atheist Bus Campaign. The campaign was really a reaction by humanists to the large amount of Christian advertising that was being promoted on buses in London. Originally, the campaign was intended only for London, but the interest in it and the support for it was so popular and so well-founded that it was decided to extend this campaign throughout the United Kingdom. The slogan that they came up with, which was placarded on the side of buses throughout the land, was this. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Evidently, their view of Christians was that we're a bunch of people who worry a lot. But in response to the advert, one very resourceful church, which happened to be situated beside a bus stop, Uh, they decided to put up their own large notice outside the church with these bold words emblazoned on the notice. There's probably no bus, so step inside and enjoy God. Which I think you will agree is a far better message. But I think too you can see what's going on here. The Christian faith was being mocked. And genuine Christians were being scoffed at. And so it continues today. Whether in conversations, in debates, in television programs, and so on. Christians and Christianity is fair game for scoffers and for mockers. And really we shouldn't be surprised at that because it's nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. And as a matter of fact, whenever you turn to 2 Peter, uh, we find that it's this kind of thing that lies behind much of what the Apostle writes about. And he's writing sometime around A.D. 64. Unlike his first letter, uh, where Peter deals mostly with problems outside the church, in this second letter... He addresses problems arising from within the church, and specifically false teachers who surreptitiously were bringing in very dangerous teaching. Indications within the letter show, amongst other things, that these false teachers were denying 
uh, the teaching, the Bible's teaching, about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 3 to 4 are particularly helpful in this regard. Peter writes, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own desires, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Second coming. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has been since the creation, since the beginning of creation. And so they were saying all of this talk about a literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is nonsense. It's not going to happen. So let's just relax. Let's stop worrying and let's just get on with life. So the Apostle Peter has to fight back and remind the Christians of what they had been taught. And what they had been taught is not fiction, but fact. Not pure myth, as some were suggesting, but certain reality. Uh, The teaching that they had received uh, rested on a solid foundation. And so Peter begins to address uh, this problem here in chapter 1 of uh, his second letter. And you'll find that following the uh, opening salutation of the letter, uh, verses 1 and and 2, there are two main sections to this uh, first chapter. The first section runs from verses 3 all the way through to 11. And then the second section uh, picks up at verse 12 and runs to the end of the chapter, verse 21. And that's the section that we're particularly interested in. But just to get a connection between the two sections, in the first section, uh, Peter encourages his readers to continue to grow in their relationship with God. Elsewhere in the letter, he makes the statement that they were um, well established in the truth. So these uh, people that he's writing to have been Christians for some time and had been uh, well taught. Nevertheless, he says, don't stand still. Uh, Keep on growing in your relationship uh, with God. And to help them do that, he reminds them of the great and precious promises of God that are recorded in Scripture. There, verse 4. Peter, you'll also find, does this. He warns them of the danger of not heeding his instructions. Uh, Verses 8 and 9. Before he goes on and points out the blessings that will uh, await them if they do obey his instructions to keep on uh, growing. And then we come into this uh, second section and pick it up here at verse 12. Uh, And Peter starts off um, with a promise to his readers that he's going to make provision for them so that they will be continually reminded of his teaching. Uh, Even after his death, and of course he senses as is indicated there in those verses, uh, verse 14, he senses that his death is near. But then in addition to that, uh, Peter wants to reassure his readers and to remind them again 
that what they have been taught, what he has been teaching them, is utterly reliable. Utterly reliable. And that's the focus of verses 16 through to 21. Now, these six verses that we're going to look at very quickly this morning, I notice the time's rushing on, these six verses can be divided into two parts, two equal parts. And these two parts correspond to two pillars on which the faith of these Christians rested. Two pillars that your faith and my faith rest on as well. Peter's concerned to talk about two things. Verses 16 through to 18, those three verses, he talks about the apostolic witness and wants to reassure them about the validity and reliability of the apostolic witness. And secondly, verses 19 through to 21, Peter talks about the prophetic word and the prophetic writings. And again, to reassure them uh, that those writings are reliable and dependable and utterly true. So with these two uh, parts before us, let's explore a little more uh, as to what Peter has to say. And so, look with me, please, at verses 16 through to 18. Uh, Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or that could be translated, the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And I want you to notice just how Peter begins here. He begins with the pronoun we. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. And when he uses that term we, he includes not only himself, but the other apostles as well. We did not follow or we did not make up cleverly invented stories or myths when we taught you the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular the truth about His second coming. The implication is that unlike the false teachers who were troubling them, we didn't make up these stories. What we told you was absolutely true. We were there. We were with Him. We heard Him. We saw Him with our own eyes. We were eyewitnesses. And in particular, Peter focuses on being an eyewitness of an event of enormous theological importance. And that event, of course, is the one that we were hearing about earlier in our service from our reading in Luke chapter 9, uh, what took place on what we refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration 
which incidentally is recorded not only in Luke's gospel, but in Mark's gospel and also in Matthew's gospel. There on that mountain, the apostles Peter, James, and John had an awe-inspiring display of the supernatural majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that whenever Peter talks about that mountain, he talks about it as the sacred mountain. Uh, The sacred mountain. For there they had an encounter with God. It's tremendous. And that experience on that mountain served two vital purposes. It's important for us to note this. First purpose was this. It confirmed and it validated Peter's earlier confession at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them the question, who do the people say that I am? And then he turned to his disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And you remember, I'm sure, uh, Peter said this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was absolutely right. And now on that Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's confession is being confirmed by God. He is the Christ. God says, He is my Son. Now you listen to what He has to say. And the implication is, don't only listen to what He is saying, but obey what He is saying as well. That's the first purpose of the transfiguration. And that's the one that we're most familiar with. But there's a second purpose to this event, which Peter draws attention to. And it is this, that what happened there on that mountain, that sacred mountain, to use the language of the apostle, that was a foretaste of the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and gives us indications of what this uh, great event in the future will be like. So Peter's point is this in writing these things. When it comes to what you have been taught, when it comes to what we have said about Jesus, about salvation, and particularly about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest assured, my listeners, that what you were taught is absolutely true. Why? Because we were there. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses. And in fact, one American Baptist preacher of a bygone generation said, Peter just wasn't an eyewitness, he was a near witness as well. Because not only did he see, but he also heard God speak. And so, he's not making it up. These are not myths contrary to what these false teachers are suggesting. 
And praise God, today we have that witness of the apostles in what we call the New Testament. The combined Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters, and so on. And these are documents that we can trust. Why? Because we can trust the sources behind the documents. And the sources behind the documents were eyewitnesses, Peter says. So that's the first thing. As Peter talks about the apostolic witness, which is important for us to get a grip of. But what about the Old Testament? Can it be trusted? Indeed, is it relevant today given the fact that we have Jesus and the apostolic testimony? What importance has the Old Testament now for our lives? Well, these are the kinds of questions I think that Peter addresses here in the verses that follow in this second section, which is verses 19 through to 21, the prophetic word. So in addition to our witness, says Peter, we also have the word of the Old Testament prophets. And he says in verse 19, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And the idea seems to be this, that whilst we always knew that the writings of the prophets were true, Peter's not denying that, now that Jesus has come, uh, those prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have been fulfilled. And so their words have been validated by the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a reliable source as well on which to build your faith and to allow your faith to be built up. But Peter doesn't stop there, which is interesting. He goes on to speak about two closely related and essential matters in the second half of verse 19, then verse 20, and on through into verse 21. And the first point that he makes is this. He talks about the general importance of the prophetic writings, if you like, the Old Testament scriptures in the lives of believers. And then the second point that he will make, he'll talk about the origin of the Old Testament scriptures. But first of all, let's think about the importance. And he says this in in verse 19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well. To pay attention to it. We have the words of the prophets. And you will do well to pay attention to it. I was suggesting uh, earlier in... uh, uh, short interview there that uh, the last year has been quite a hectic year. Uh, uh, my mother uh, passed away some months ago and is now in the glory. But amongst the few possessions that uh, she left behind was a beautiful uh, dinner set, which was made of fine bone china. Uh, the whole works. Uh, I mean, plates, cups, bowls, saucers, just everything. A beautiful set indeed. And we always knew as children growing up that mum had this set. Uh, but it just lay in the cupboard for years. And, she, and it really never saw the light of day. 
when you asked her about it, well, she said, well, this, is, this was a wedding gift to your father uh, and to myself. And she valued it, but she never used it. And we always find this very strange. You know, mom, what's the point of having a set like that, uh, which was intended to be used, but you never use it? Uh, And she would say, it's too good to be used, son. (laughs) Anybody got a set like that in the house? (laughs) Too good to be used. Well, she passed away. So guess what I'm meeting off? (laughs) But Peter's point here is simply this. You've got the writings of the Old Testament prophets. They're a gift to you from God. Not to be hidden away. Yes, you value them, but go further. Use them. Pay attention to them. Read them. That's Peter's point. You will do well to pay attention to it. And that's just another way of saying... Please read these writings and please do them. Read them and obey them. And that's a challenge not only for me, but I suggest for the rest of us here today as well. We need to read the Old Testament. Study the Old Testament. Learn the Old Testament. And seek to obey the Old Testament by the grace of God. And why is that important? Well, Peter explains why it's important. For he goes on to add this. He says, you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. See what he's getting at there? As to a light shining in a dark place. When Peter talks about a dark place, what's he referring to? Well, he's referring to this world. It's a dark place. And that word that he uses for dark here, not only means dark, but it also means it's a squalid place. It's a, it's a grubby place. It's a filthy place. That's Peter's description of this world. We live in a world that is full of sin. It's full of corruption. It's full of violence. It's full of all kinds of horrible things. And at times, when you listen to the news, it's almost as though you feel unclean by what you're hearing and what you're witnessing. It's so bad. And this is the description that Peter uses of this. Paul elsewhere talks about a world that is corrupting, just defiles you. But Peter's point is this. God has given us a lamp. 
that we might navigate this dark world and be able to stay on our feet and not stumble at what's going on around us and not fall into temptation. We need that lamp in this dark, squalid, grubby world. There's so much error out there. We need help. And God has given us help. And of course, these words of Peter, they they just echo, don't they, the words of the psalmist. In Psalmist 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what Peter is saying here is this, and we need to hear this as much as his readers, first readers needed to hear this. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament needs to be read and studied. But the challenge is this, are we doing that? Are we doing that? And how long are we to do this? Peter goes on, until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in our hearts, which is a reference uh, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep on paying attention to God's Word. And here Peter focuses specifically on the Old Testament uh, prophets until the time when Christ Jesus returns. But Peter doesn't stop there. Because he has more to say. And if we're going to be encouraged to do this, we need to know where these writings came from. And so he talks about the origin of these prophetic writings. And with regard to the origin of the writings, Peter, before he makes a very striking, powerful, uh, positive statement, makes two negative statements. Let me just point out quickly the two negative statements. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. There's a lot of debate about that uh, statement there, uh, but I think that's the correct translation that uh, we have in our Bibles. In other words, prophecy is not a matter of the prophets simply interpreting their own religious experiences and leaving it there. The second negative point he makes is this, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. That is to say, it's not by human will. In other words, the prophets who spoke and then wrote, or at least had their writings written down, that task of being a prophet wasn't something that they chose for themselves. No! It wasn't what you would say a career option for them. Well, who would want it? Certainly Moses didn't want it. And Jeremiah, he was reluctant and hesitated as well about the Lord. I'm, I'm just too young. And throughout his prophetic ministry, he struggled with the fact that he had to bring God's word to the people. And you could think too of other prophets like Isaiah in that sense of, I'm just too sinful, Lord, why me? Calling 
To be a prophet did not originate with the will of man. Well then, where did it come from? And here's this all-important positive statement that you really want to underline in your Bible if you haven't already. Verse 21, But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the way it's translated in our English Bibles. And that's a good translation. But what's interesting when you dig into this is Peter's word order. Let me share that with you for just a moment. And his word order is slightly different. It reads like this. But through the Holy Spirit, carrying them along from God, man spoke. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is this, that Peter's emphasis is on the fact that God has spoken and that these servants of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, through the Holy Spirit, carrying them along from God, man spoke. So, Peter puts that up front in the sentence for the sake of emphasis, emphasizing God's role. Now, he's not denying, don't misunderstand me, he's not denying that men didn't play a role in this. They clearly did, because Peter says, men spoke, men spoke. In other words, the words that you and I have in, in Scripture comes from real people, people like you and me. They lived in their own historical time. They lived in their own historical context. They shared the culture of the people around them. They thought, they felt, they struggled, they faced similar realities of life that you and I face. And in that sense, the Scriptures are fully human. And incidentally, that is why in college, in a theological college, it's important to train students to read and study these Scriptures carefully and pay attention to that human element, to the historical context, to the, the culture of the day, to what was happening at the time to the language that's being used, and so on and so forth. And that's why it's important that we have Bible teachers today who are able to do that, and books today that are able to communicate that to us. So Peter says, yes, men spoke. But the words that men spoke were the message of God. That's his point. The message of God. Through the Holy Spirit... Carrying them along from God, man spoke. In other words, the words that were spoken, the words that were written down, were entirely their own words, but they were entirely what God wanted them to say and to write down. And God ensured that that was the case by means of the Holy Spirit. 
So these words that we read in our Old Testament, these are the very words of God. And there is mystery in this. Of course there's mystery in this. Paul, too, refers this. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, so forth. And don't misunderstand. Peter is not saying that these prophets were dictation machines, that somehow they just sat there and waited and then it was downloaded to them all from heaven. Not at all. Because whenever you read the different books of the Bible, you read that men like Jeremiah and Isaiah have their own styles of writing, ways of expressing things, so on and so forth. But in the midst of all of that diversity, we have in the Bible the words of God, what God wanted them to say and to record. So we'll often talk about the words of Isaiah. We'll often talk about the words of Daniel. We'll talk about the words of Nehemiah or some other figure of the past. But they're all the word of God. God spoke. God spoke. And because of that, we can depend upon them, build our lives upon them, and seek to develop our faith through them. Well, I need to draw this to a conclusion. I began by saying, that back in 2009, there was a great campaign from atheists just to poke fun at Christians throughout the land. And we continue to live in an age of skepticism and cynicism. People still laugh at us today because of what we believe and what we do. They laugh at us at the very thought of the fact that this Christ of yours is going to come a second time. Nonsense. We shouldn't be surprised at that. It's the kind of world that we live in. And as I indicated to you earlier, Peter had to deal with things like that as well. But I want to finish this morning by suggesting to you, and others have suggested this as well, so it's by no means unique, but that there is a a more sinister danger facing the church today. And that is that there are Christians who, although they're very sincere, They are ignorant and confused in their faith. Why? Because they fail to value the whole word of God and fail to read and study the whole word of God. And consequently, their understanding of who God is and what God is doing in the world today is faulty. And this affects not only the way that they view the world and view salvation, but it affects the way that they live, it affects the way that they worship, and it affects the way that they even present the gospel. Paul speaks of teaching the whole counsel of God. Sadly, there are many believers today who 
are settling for less than the whole counsel of God. And they are reflecting, sadly, the standard that is being set by spiritual leaders. Now, I know that's not the case here, by the way. But the message of this passage is very relevant indeed. Our faith is built upon apostolic witness and the prophetic word. Old Testament, New Testament, if you like. We need to be men and women who recognize that these documents are reliable, these documents are true, these documents need to be read, they need to be studied, they need to be worked out in everyday life. And when we preach the gospel, we need to realize that the roots of that gospel go back into the Old Testament as well. As we sometimes say, the gospel is good news, but it's not new news. As the apostles were able to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Could you do that? Could I do that? We need to study our Old Testaments as well. And just to be very practical as we close today, and forgive me for just going over the time, um, it's good that, you know, in your church I know this, that you alternate between Old Testament and New Testament, and that's great. But let me just encourage you as a private individual to, to, to read God's Word on a regular basis. Read God's Word on a regular basis. In the privacy of your own homes, have some kind of reading plan. Maybe 15 minutes a day. But let me encourage you to read not only New Testament, but Old Testament as well. And take 15 minutes, a chapter from the Old, a chapter from the New, and embrace the whole counsel of God so that your spiritual development may rest upon a very sure and strong foundation. Let's pray.